conflict resolution, the cross, you can see the symbol of the cross there, that is the ultimate conflict resolution, and we'll maybe think more of that a bit later on. But going to our passage here in Joshua 22, we see that there is, first of all, faithful service, TBC, to be continued, faithful service. And you can see on the map uh, that there is on the west, the nine and a half tribes of the Israelites, on the east are the two and a half tribes, uh, 12 tribes altogether. The tribe of Manasseh was divided into two. So there's half tribe on the west, half tribe on the east. So hence the nine and a half tribes and the two and a half tribes. So it's a little bit uh, confusing in a sense, but uh, if you recognize that the land of Manasseh, the Manasseh tribe was split into two parts, east and west of the Jordan River, which divided down the center of, of Israel and does still today. Uh, then that makes more sense. Well, a bit of a recap. The Western tribes, well, they had more struggle to get the land settled for them. The Israelites, when they came from the wilderness after the wandering years, they approached from the east and came across uh, from, from that side. And the two and a half eastern tribes, they'd already had their land allocated. They had access to their land, their allotment, um, and they could just settled on the east and left the rest of the nine and a half tribes uh, to continue to secure their territory. But the fighting age men of the two and a half tribes, the eastern Israelites, they decide and commit themselves to crossing over the Jordan with the rest and to only go back when the rest of the nation was settled. And so we see faithful service of the tribes of the east supporting the tribes on the west. So, and it was a costly sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for the families they have to, had to leave behind uh, there in the east. And also for themselves, because to go forward or go west across the river uh, to help their brothers and sisters uh, settle in their land, they were risking their lives. They were risking their lives in battle. And so seven years later, the eastern brothers have uh, completed their mission, completed their uh, help for the western tribes, they faithfully served, and now they can go back to their inheritance. And in Joshua 22, verse 1, Joshua summons the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that's those two and a half from the east, and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. The mission is over. They can go home. But there's an instruction here to stay on your guard. The faithfulness needs to, to be TBC, to be continued. These troops have earned some rest now, haven't they? They've worked really hard. They've risked their lives. They've been separated from their families for so long. They'll, they will now be returning to a more settled way of life, to their homes, their fields, and to their beloved families. And also, they're going back with a lot of wealth, plunder from the battles they've been involved with. They're going back with a lot of wealth in their pockets and bags. Verse 5, Joshua instructs them, but be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God. That's significant, isn't it? To love 
the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, after working really, really hard, you've probably experienced this, maybe moving to an easier situation, a time of rest, a time of holiday maybe, uh, we can see that these, these men who've been involved in warfare, moving to easier times with money in their pockets, it can be a recipe for slipping back into bad ways and into forgetting God, can't it? There's an interesting proverb, Proverbs 30, verse 7, and we can see the heart of uh, the Agur, who's the writer of this proverb. And he says this, Two things I ask of you, he's talking to God, don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. So we can see there's a danger in having too much money, if we're not able to handle it. There's also a danger in having too much rest, when things are hard and then suddenly become easy. And it's often the case that we're most vulnerable just after we've had to be really strong. Have you ever noticed that? Just after you've had to be really strong to do something right. That's often when we're most vulnerable. The adrenaline drops. Tiredness sets in and hey, haven't we earned a bit of indulgence? A bit of me time? Maybe it's after a baptism. Maybe it's after a commitment to church membership. Maybe it's after working on an outreach event. Maybe it's after helping someone with a deep problem and you've had to go deep into their situation and help them. Maybe it's after a holiday Bible club and there's a euphoria, and, but tiredness sets in, the adrenaline, adrenaline drops away, we're tired, and we want some R&R, some downtime. It can be those times we can be most vulnerable. And don't forget we have an enemy, the devil, who knows that as well. The Apostle Paul realized that he was vulnerable after having preached to others. He exerted himself in, the, in his ministry, in his preaching to others, in his missionary work. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is what he says. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, the Apostle Paul is not saying that he literally beat himself up <laughs> after preaching, but he's using an Olympic uh, athletic term of discipline. He disciplined himself. And no doubt those disciplines were in terms of his spending time with the Lord, uh, not indulging too much drink and not indulging too much of anything and just being like an athlete, training his mind and body, keeping a sense of discipline about him, even after he preached to others so that I myself will not be disqualified. I heard years ago about um, someone who wired up a preacher whether it's a number of them, it's probably a wider test than just one preacher. And they worked out uh, with the kind of ECG kind of things that they wired him up to. They worked out that an hour's passionate preaching is equal to eight hours physical work in terms of what it does on the body, the stresses on the body. <sighs> Even preaching can have a strain. Even after preaching to others. That downtime after others. That downtime after teaching the Sunday school lesson. That downtime after we've witnessed and answered people's questions and, we're, and then the adrenaline comes in, the tiredness. It's not wrong to rest, of course. It's not wrong to rest. There are holidays taught us in the Bible to have breaks, to have holy days, to have times of rest, to have a day in the week 
where things aren't the same to rest. It's not wrong to rest, of course. Jesus tried to get away with his disciples for a break. But we also need to remember that even after the obvious battle is over, there's still a battle in our hearts, isn't there? And we can be vulnerable if we don't keep our guard up. So just think this through practically. What is the best way for me to relax? Ask yourself a question. You can ask it for me as well if you want to. But what is the best way for me, for you to relax? What is the best way to use your downtime? We do need rest. We do need R&R. &R. But sometimes maybe we've gotten habits of things that are not helpful to us, not healthy for us. Think that through. Pray it through. The second thing we note is that sin matters in this passage. Sin matters. Going back to Joshua 22, verse 10. When they came to Geliloth, near Geliloth, sorry, uh, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. So these eastern tribes, they're going towards the, the Jordan, and it seems that before they cross over to their territory, they build on the western bank a, an alternative altar. An alternative altar. It's, a, it's an impressive thing. It's a grand thing. Now, the nine and a half tribes in the west, when they hear about this grand altar near the River Jordan, they suspect, they understandably fear that the eastern tribes are trying to establish maybe an alternative place and an alternative way of worshipping, a rival to the authorised tabernacle and the altar that was at the moment at, uh, I believe, Shiloh. Will they reject their commitment to obey the Lord and follow his ways? Why have they built this altar? God gave us the instructions for the tabernacle. God gave Moses the instructions for the altar. And it's at Shiloh. Why this alternative altar by the side of the river here? Are they intending to adopt the religious practices of the nations around them? Is that what they're intending on? Verse 12, we see the response. The whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them, these two and a half tribes. So civil war is looming with the intent of punishing these eastern tribes for what they suspect uh, they have, have, have done. They suspect that a terrible disaster will come on the nation if they don't do something. And they're thinking this is the only way to stop, to destroy this alternative altar, to, to punish the perpetrators who built this altar. Civil war is almost there. But thankfully, in verse 13, we see they, first of all, send a delegation to see what's going on. And we'll come back to that a bit later on. But seriously, though, why would this matter so much? This, this, this altar on the side of the River Jordan, there's loads of altars around in the land of Canaan. There's all sorts of uh, altars and places to sacrifice. Why does it matter so much about having just the one authorized? Isn't it a bit narrow-minded, after all? And come on, dudes, let's chill a bit. This is the 1400s BC. This is not still the 2000s BC. Come on. Why does it matter? Well, first of all, because these eastern tribes had made a commitment, along with the others, along with the rest of the tribes of Israel. And Joshua has just reminded them to love the Lord and to obey him and to follow the instructions. They had made a commitment to carefully obey the Lord, to love him, to be loyal to him, does that count? Surely it should. Why does it matter so much? Well, secondly, because God had provided a way of approaching him. The way of approaching him. 
Everything was set out and organized. There was this tent temple structure. There was the, the, the altar. There, were, there was the, the, the items, the furniture inside this. The, the Ark of the Covenant right in the Holy of Holies. It was all prepared. The, the way to approach God. The way to approach God through sacrifice. It was all set out and organized. The Lord had given Moses the instructions to build this altar on which to make sacrifices to him. And there, as I said, there was this special tent temple, the tabernacle. It was the only way, and it was a good way. It kept people's minds truly focused on who God is, on approaching him with, with reverence and awe, recognizing the importance of, of, of right over wrong, and that people needed forgiveness and needed to approach God through sacrifice. It was a good way. And apart from crossing the River Jordan, it was no further away for many in the west side as in the east. And of course, Israel isn't a very big country anyway. So why build this alternative altar when God has given us his way to approach him? You know, if the way to God starts with human beings, if it's from us up, then maybe we can try our own ideas and worship in different ways and make up our own religions. But when God has given us his way to get to him and instructions on how to live, then we need to take note of what he says, don't we, obviously? It reminds us of the words of Jesus in John 14, verse 6. These are very challenging words, unpolitically correct words in this day and age. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a way, the way, one way. Jesus is the way, the one who sacrificed his life for us. It reminds us of what is said about Jesus in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name, no other way. So it does matter to build an alternative altar, to, to sacrifice and, and try and find another way to God. Well, that clearly would be wrong. It does matter. It would matter because it would divert people away from the way that God had provided. And if God has provided a way, and we go an alternative way, well, obviously the alternative way is the wrong way. So we're not going to know God. We're not going to be saved. We're not going to be forgiven if we go an alternative way to the way that God has given. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that people might have done this? Well, thirdly, because the past has clearly shown the pastor's clearly shown that when people start to worship God their way and ignore what he says, goodness and holiness start to quickly unravel and society breaks down. And in verse 17 of our chapter, uh, Phineas, who's the priest who goes with the delegation to meet the two and a half tribes and to challenge them, he points out something that happened in the past. He says, remember Peor, in effect. Remember what happened. And what happened uh, that... Phineas refers to in verse 17 was this, that when Moses was alive, the enemies of Israel couldn't defeat them in battle. And we got, with God's help, they were very strong. But many of the Israelite men took the opportunity to have sex with the Moabite women. That was part of their religion. They didn't live too far away. And sexual immorality and prostitution, part of their religion, and these ladies invited the men to join them, not only with that, but also to worship their gods, the gods of the Moabites. And on that, on that occasion at Peor, strong men, victorious in battle, physically strong and courageous, were weak and took advantage of these attractive women. And the consequence of that failure back at Peor was disastrous. Remember what happened in the past when 
people went away from the Lord and went their own way. And then in verse 20, he talks about remembering what happened with the incident with Achan. In Achan, about seven years before, Achan had disobeyed the clear instructions not to take any plunder from, from the city of Jericho after the battle. And he did. And again, it led to disastrous consequences. So one of the reasons why it's important to follow the Lord and why sin, why trying to build an alternative altar would be wrong is because consequences happen. This world is designed, family life is designed, society is designed by God, the cosmos is designed by God to be in line with his laws of love and truth and righteousness and justice. And when we break those laws of, of truth and righteousness and love, well, we can see what's happening in the world today, can't we? See what's happening, ha happening in our society, the nastiness in our own society. But there's a question that comes out from this, and that is, for us to consider something to be wrong, do there always have to be immediate or direct consequences? Because let's be honest, there are some people, when you look through history, who seem to have got away with a lot of bad stuff. Isn't that true? We can see the disasters that happen in the world when people have done wrong, but we can also see a number of examples where people have got rich on the back of mistreating others, and they seem to be okay. Where people have been exploited, and the exploiter seems to have got away. Where all crimes haven't been found out, and some people live in the lap of luxury somewhere on the, the Mediterranean or somewhere like that, uh, having escaped. So... It isn't always the case that there's a tangible consequence following sin. But does that make a difference? Does that make sin any, any less sin? Even if the Israelites did not experience direct consequences from worshipping God another way, or from including the worship of other gods, even if there was no immediate tangible consequence, would it still matter? Is sin still serious? It certainly would matter, wouldn't it, to someone who'd been saved by God and who loved God? who treated God as their Heavenly Father, who didn't want to displease him and dishonor him. It certainly does to the God who so loved them. Does it matter to you? Does it matter to you? For example, do we only remain faithful to our spouses, to our friends, to our family, to our church, for fear that things will go bad? Is that the only reason why we don't want to do things wrong? If we can get away with it and no one seems to get hurt, which is often, often an excuse for sin, well, nobody will get hurt, is unfaithfulness of whatever kind, is it okay? Or is faithfulness a good in itself to be held on to tenaciously, whether or not we get found out, whether or not there are consequences? What do you think? Well, we see how the nine and a half tribes were prepared to go to war over this altar. So they're considering it something very serious, aren't they? And I'm sure they hadn't forgotten how the eastern tribes had just finished seven years of faithful service on their behalf. For them. So this can't be a grudge thing. The way that these nine and a half tribes get their swords ready to go and do something about this alternative altar. It's not a grudge thing. I'm sure it's with great grief and sadness that they take up their swords ready to fight if needed. They would swing their swords with heavy hearts if it came to that. But it begs the question. What really matters to you? What really matters to us? What really matters to me? When it comes to right or wrong, what moves us? What makes us angry? And are the things that matter to us, are the things that we get het up about, are those the things that really matter to God? 
two examples, things that matter to Jesus, to our God and Saviour. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. His innards were moved. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When you look at a, a, a crowd of folk in the marketplace in Newark, you see people who are lost, without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Do you have compassion? When we think about the fact that there are people in the world to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, they have little chance at the moment. There's no one who's there within miles and miles and miles to tell them. Does that move you with compassion? Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. There's compassion. There's a prayer request. This is what moves and touches the heart of God. Another example, there could be many examples uh, of different things uh, that Jesus was moved about. But Mark chapter 3 and uh, verse 4, it's the argument that uh, some of the religious, religious leaders are bringing about what to do on the, the Saturday, the Sabbath. Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. Jesus, in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. I wonder if those are the kind of things that move you that make you angry, that make you cross. In Psalm 145, verse 8, it says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. But he does get angry. He's slow to anger, but he does get angry. Another example of what moves the heart of God and angers the heart of God, in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16. It's written in a poetic form. But uh, it makes the point here. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, proud eyes, proud attitude. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Are those the kind of things that you hate? Those are the kind of attitudes that you hate. God hates these things. God is angry about these kind of attitudes. Do we, should we, get angry about the things that we often do? Should we be angry or more passionate about other things? Sometimes, let's be honest, the anger that we have is when we're frustrated that we're not getting our own way. When we're not getting what we want and when we want it. That can often be what stirs our anger. But do we share the concerns over the Lord? Should we be angry, more passionate about other things? Do the things that stir us, the things that make us angry, match the concerns and responses of God? And of course, 
that this is something that will develop as we get to know God better and better. It's a journey. And so let's ask God to help us on that journey, to think more like him, to have attitudes more like his. Now, the Western Israelites, let's go back to ancient Israel. The Western Israelites were concerned and they were angry, angry enough to go to war, but I'm sure with a heavy heart. And now we know that the Israelites were certainly not the best of examples, were they? But here they do seem to share a godly response to what appears to be treachery and rebellion against the Lord. Now, of course, when God gets angry and passionate, he does not sin. We have to watch ourselves, don't we? So as we pray, Lord, make me more responsive, make me more compassionate to people, make, me, make my heart moved more, make me more angry with the things that I should be angry about. Lord, help my thinking to be more like your thinking. As we pray that, we need to watch ourselves because mere human anger that is not constrained in a godly way is a dangerous thing. Ephesians 4 verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. Verse 26, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So we have to be careful, don't we? with human anger. But anger in itself is not wrong. That's the, the basic point here. Anger in itself is not wrong. But we need to ask, are the things that stir me, are they godly concerns? When I am angry, what is the wisest way to express it? What do I do with this? And if you have any issues regarding that, you want to talk through them, please do speak to me afterwards or those leaders in your home group if, there's the, if any of these kind of issues are re relevant to you. I'm sure they are one way or another. And the last thing is this, the last main point is this, we see a conflict resolved. There's a diplomatic delegation, verse 13 and 14, the response, even as the Israelites, the nine and a half tribes, sharpen their swords, the Israelites wisely send a delegation, a diplomatic delegation before any further action. So the Israelites send Phineas the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. So they didn't go in like a bull in a china shop, did they? Which is very wise. Maybe we might tend to do that. Uh, when we need to challenge people about things, when we get concerns, do we go in pumped up, as it were, arms whirling, or do we make it as diplomatic as possible? Do we go with a prayerful, thoughtful, heart-searching, Lord, what is the plank in my eye attitude before we start to pick on the speck in our brother or sister's eye? So sending a diplomatic delegation is a wise thing, of course, isn't it? And we see there's nevertheless an honest challenge in verse 16. The whole assembly of the Lord says... How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? So there's an honest challenge here. This is what it appears to us. Now, in our culture, we might have said something like, well, brothers, the way this thing appears to us is that you're rebelling against the Lord. Now, is this true? We might have said it like that, but there's an honest challenge here, isn't there? They don't shy away from an honest challenge, and we need to be at times courageous in how we speak to one another. There needs to be an honest challenge because we love each other. The New Testament advice encourages us to, to do that, to challenge each other where necessary, not all the time, <laughs> where necessary, but with honesty and with care. 
In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says there, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, which should be every Christian, every healthy Christian, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you, or you also may be tempted. So we need to challenge people in love, but watch ourselves. So there's a, an honest challenge. But then we also see, I think I missed something, diplomatic delegation, honest challenge, and then a conciliatory offer made. Now this is very interesting. This is very interesting. Because the next move is not get rid of that altar or else. That's not the next thing that's said. It's if there's a problem with you living over there on the east across the river, come and join us. If living over there is affecting you and you're going to turn away from the Lord, come and live in our territory. To share in our cities. We're going to have less space, but you know it's worth it because we don't want you to, to bring disaster upon us as a nation and we don't want you to be unfaithful to the Lord who you love surely and who we love. There's an offer, a conciliatory offer made. Verse 19. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. Now this shows a genuine concern for the eastern tribes. Sometimes when we challenge people, it can be to just knock them down. Because we're angry in a sinful way. It's about us. But when we challenge people in love, we need to have the desire to help people up and out. When we challenge or stir someone, it's not to judge and condemn. The, the joy is not in the challenging, is it? The joy is not in the challenging. The joy is seeing restoration and resolution. That's what we should seek to be doing. The joy is not the challenging, but seeing the restoration and the resolution. But then we see that there is an explanation given. An explanation given. It's important to see that this delegation listens. Listens. And we are taught that in James chapter 1, verse 19 in the New Testament. The Apostle James writes this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So we need to be willing to listen to an explanation. We need to be willing to listen to what is said. And that's the case here back in Israel. The delegation listens, verse 21. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us to this day. And they explain the motivation behind building this altar. They explain that the motivation is to avoid something happening in the future, to avoid the sense that the Lord is for the Westerners, but we're across there, across the river in the east, divided. The purpose of the altar is, is not to worship at. It's not to be an active altar. It's a re replica. And it's to remind everyone that the eastern tribes also belong to the Lord. Those in the east belong to the west. We all belong to the Lord. Verse 28 of our passage says, It is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary. So there is, is listening going on. 
listening to the explanation. Very wise. We have two ears and one mouth. Listening is important. And then there is understanding and conflict resolution. After all, as a great relief, the purpose of building this altar is found out. The purpose and the motivation is good after all. There's no bad motivation behind this. Again, chapter 22, verse 13. When Phineas, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. So we see how God is glorified in a peaceful resolution. Verse 33, they were glad to hear the report and praise God. So the intention of this confrontation, the, the intention of this challenge was to seek a resolution, to seek a, 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 a peaceful resolution to this conflict situation. And that is achieved. As I said, sometimes when we challenge others, we want to get our piece of meat. But here we see the purpose of this conflict resolu resolution process was to restore, to rebuild. And thank, thank the Lord it did happen on this occasion. So thinking about our action plan, thinking about how we respond to this. We've seen faithful service. And the faithful service was to be TBC, to be continued and we need to remind ourselves that yes we are called to serve faithfully and even times when we're resting when we're having some R&R &R, we need to remember to be on our guard to love the Lord and to be careful to obey his instructions to not let the guard down even when we're tired and in a time of holiday we've also seen well, we see the example of faithful service, don't we? Which is in itself is a wonderful thing uh, to, to aspire to. How those men crossed the Jordan to serve with their brothers and sisters on the west at risk to themselves. And there's a great example of, of faithful service. And it's good to follow good examples in our lives. And then we've also seen how sin matters. Sin matters. And even when there are no direct consequences or immediate consequences, sin matters. Why? Because the Lord has loved us. He saved us. And we love him. And we want to please and to honor our Father. But sin matters in other ways too. Because there are consequences. There's separation from God. There's ultimately judgment. And sin does matter. God is serious about sin. God is angry about sin. There is a judgment day to come. We should not take God's mercy for granted in the sense that, well, I can just get away with it and say sorry at the end. That's not the attitude. Our attitude is sin is serious. We don't compromise. It is serious. There is a judgment day to come. But there is mercy. And that's the message of Christianity. That's why God built the tabernacle. To show many, many years before Jesus came the way that through sacrifice we can approach God, be forgiven, and enter into a relationship with God. And then, of course, those many years later after that, Christ came, the final Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. There is mercy, there is anger, there is judgment for those who refuse to repent. But there is mercy for those who come to him. Have you taken that mercy for yourself? Have you responded to that mercy? Have you responded to that love, loving sacrifice of Jesus? Again, if you'd like to explore more about that, please do ask me afterwards. And we've also seen a wise delegation. A wise delegation 
brings about conflict resolution and that makes us think about how we handle situations where we're upset or angry or offended that we need to seek resolution and great conflict resolution here is uh, the result of it is peace and glory to God and that's what we want in the end isn't it not to get a pound of flesh out of a confrontation but that we see God glorified in the dwelling of God's people together in peace and harmony as we sung earlier on and last of all this conflict resolution here reminds us of the world's greatest conflict resolution and that is how God sent his son to reconcile us to himself let's pray Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are the greatest conflict resoluter in the whole of, it, of history. Lord, you are the one who brings the worst conflict to a peaceful resolution. And we thank you that you did that through your son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to offer that sacrifice of yourself. Lord, you crossed the river to enter into the battlefield to be our saviour. Lord, you gave your life as that final, full and final sacrifice to bring peace and forgiveness and the mercy of God to our own lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did. Lord, help us to be faithful in our service. Help us to be on our guard, even in our downtimes, when we're tired, when the adrenaline uh, drops away. Help us, Father, to be faithful to you, the one who so loves us and the one who we love. Lord, we ask that you'd help us, dear Lord, to, to realize that sin does matter. Lord, in our own lives, help us not to excuse things away. Help us, dear Lord, not to take things uh, in a blasé way, Lord. Help us, Lord, to recognize that faithfulness and truthfulness and righteousness are things to tenaciously hold to, even when we could get away with it. Because it's against you who so loved us. It's because it's wrong, it's evil. And Lord, we've repented of evil, therefore how can we think it's okay? And Lord, please help us to be wise in how we speak to each other, how we challenge each other where we need to. Help us to be gracious and to desire resolution for your glory and praise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.